So I think all of us have had an experience of scrolling through social media and wondering how this person that shows up in your feed managed to get a platform, Uh, how he or she had the opportunity to weigh in on all of these different important matters. Um, And, you know, in earlier episodes of this podcast, we've talked about how influence is a form of leadership. And you see these different people who have the opportunity to exert their influence, whether it's in the political space or in terms of culture, um, or maybe it's even in the place that you work. And you wonder to yourself, how did this person get to lead? That brings us to today's episode where we ask, who gets to lead? Now, there are a number of reasons why people self-select into leadership roles and even more reasons why people pull back. What we know is that organizations and communities benefit from leadership that both reflects the needs and experiences of the people they want to lead and somebody who can challenge those folks to embrace new opportunities or to tackle difficult circumstances in a healthy way. Today, we're going to hear from two recent guests of the Institute for Leadership and Service, Ava Kreikel and Nate Marshall, on the ways they came to embrace their leadership positions and helped others discover leadership potential. Before we get into those interviews, I'm so happy to be back in our regular format because it means I get to welcome my colleague and co-host, Allie DeVries, to the conversation. Hi, Allie. Hi, Taze. Okay, so I feel like we are having this conversation with students all the time, and I think we're having it with each other all the time. Um, so why don't we start um, with some of the ways that students in our CAPS Fellows program, since you know we're kind of come, we're now halfway through the first semester, the students have processed their experiences from the summer, and some of the learnings and things that we've seen that kind of came out of their experiences. Absolutely, I think one of the biggest surprises that a lot of students experience across the CAPS Fellows program is finding themselves in places of significant responsibility as interns at these organizations of realizing that, you know, we talk to them about it being not just making copies and getting coffee, although those things are important. Um, (laughs) Good coffee is essential to organizations. For sure, definitely for the Institute. Um, But realizing that they're stepping into these organizations in a temporary role, but where they've been tasked with significant responsibility and learning to how to, how to know how to ask good questions, to know when to trust themselves and trust their own experience, and that they are coming into these opportunities with um, significant expertise in different things that they've learned and developed, whether that's in the classroom or in student organization experience, other leadership opportunities here on campus. So really hoping to empower those students to be able to step into those positions, even if they feel a little bit underqualified um, or having to kind of find their footing a little bit when they get there. Well, and I think that's one of those things where part of what we kind of are doing in this small way at the Institute, but I think are happening in lots of different spaces, not just at this university, but others, but the ways that there are communities that kind of surround students and young people. Um, and when a community or a group has said like, no, we see something in you, really helping students to embrace that. And I think part of the application process and the interview process is even with this group of really stellar students who's been told, no, like you are, you are, you are somebody who is going to do well in this. You are somebody who we see potential in. you are somebody who we know can like embrace this work and do it well. And even for folks who have been told repeatedly, we see something in you that there can be the sense of like, oh, can I do this? And trying to figure out how to get young people to trust themselves and to trust these communities around them. I think 
Yeah, and part of it is really putting themselves into these opportunities where they can kind of test it out and try out their own leadership ability mm-hmm. in um, a space of learning and, mm-hmm. and encouragement um, where they're able to try that out. And I think that's one of the things that um, we try to do in CAPS. Um, we do it throughout the selection process. You know, it's not all just paperwork for me to have fun with. <laughs> you know, that the process of writing this yeah. statement, of going through the interviews with the committee, with these different organizations, um, is kind of being able to learn through that process more about your own ability and kind of have those things affirmed in you in different settings and different ways. Um, but then even getting into the um, kind of community of support within CAPS, that these are site supervisors who know that you're there to learn mm-hmm. and grow. Um, there's other students who are all learning there with you and experiencing mm-hmm. this with you and who can affirm things um, or challenge you in different ways at the same time. Well, and I think for how are we taking this kind of CAPS experience and how do we translate this to those of you who are either already graduated or who don't know that being a CAPS fellow is something that you would be able to do. I think that one of the ways that you can kind of take what we're talking about here and make it applicable is that for any job, any fellowship, chances are you're going to have the opportunity to write a personal statement or a cover letter. You're going to put together a resume. And I think inviting other people to offer feedback, not just in terms of like grammar or design, but in terms of like what they see in you and the things that they think you should be highlighting for this position or for this opportunity and letting your community kind of speak into your life the things that they see that are worth highlighting. That even if that particular job or opportunity doesn't work out, I think that it can be really powerful to have other people name the good that they see in you and the skills that they see you developing and how that changes the way that you tell your own story. Um, For example, I think that, you know, when we were preparing for this episode, um, you had this great story about something that I think you should share. I don't want to paraphrase it. You should share. Yeah. So I was thinking about the different opportunities um, for these communities of support to appear and to kind of affirm those things in you as a student. And when I was a student here, I remember this particular um, moment within my senior year um, where I'd made a comment to a professor that I'd been taking TESOL classes with and I had been working with an international student uh, in a tutoring setting. And I had just made this kind of offhanded comment about how core at the time wasn't made for international students. And um, and so she had sat down with me at one point and said, can you tell me more about that? You know, what do you think about that? And so I had kind of offered some feedback from, you know, what I had seen just in my singular tutoring sessions with mm-hmm. this particular student. Um, and I was kind of surprised in the moment that she was listening to me. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know really what I have to offer. I just have this one experience with this one student. Um, but it made me think about the things that we had learned in the classroom about how we adapt classrooms and activities and different things for ESL learners. Um, and then later on in the year, I uh, was reached out to by what I didn't know was happening. There was this task force of people talking about how do we better serve students, international students who are in core. Mm-hmm. And they had reached out to me about implementing some of my ideas in terms of editing how we do film screenings to make them more accessible Um, for English language learners. And it's not something that I had recognized as a strength for me or that I was bringing any new ideas for the table. I thought I was just kind of commenting from Mm -hmm. my singular experience. Um, But having those ideas affirmed as valuable input, as something that they were open to trying, and then inviting me to be the person to actually give it a shot and see Mm -hmm. how it goes, 
um, really spoke to me as a student. Um, and even though I felt completely unqualified mm-hmm. and wasn't sure that I was the best person to be doing it, um, really recognized an opportunity to lead in myself at that time that I would not have put myself forward for yeah. without someone asking me to do it. Yeah. Well, I think this is a really interesting thing, again, in, in helping kind of current students and people, young people kind of in the working world right now to kind of find these different people who you can be in conversation with who aren't necessarily, they're not like your amen chorus, they're not your cheerleaders, they're not the people who are going to tell you that you are perfect and special no matter what, but the people who you can be in conversation with that when they name, like, that's interesting, that's worth following up on, tell me more about that, the people who will help kind of build up these things that, you know, I think as you said, you wouldn't have named yourself as like a leader on this particular topic, but somebody who saw something in your experience and in your feedback and was able to both kind of help you cultivate your thoughts about that and then connect you with an opportunity to deepen that. And I think that all of us can be more aware of the different people who we're engaging with, that you want to have, um, you want to have friends and you want to have the community that kind of lifts you up, but there's also the community that helps kind of hone your skills and really being intentional about needing to develop both of those things and finding good conversation partners. Um, Because I think one of the things that we end up focusing on a lot is the ways that community um, kind of writ large. So when we think about kind of a purely kind of Western culture, American context, there are certain ways that we kind of instantly talk about leaders that leaders are people who are good in front of a room, that leaders are people who can kind of command an audience with like, you know, sheer force of personality. um, And they can really kind of control the narrative in these different ways. And one of the things that we, I think, focus on a lot here is wanting to help people see different kinds of leadership and different ways that that can manifest itself. And this is where, as you're in conversation with different people, thinking about what makes you unique and what that can bring to the different organizations that you're a part of. Um, So whether it's, you know, again, in a student organization context or in a more professional context, that the things that make you different um, might also be the things that equip you to lead in a really creative and interesting way that that organization hasn't seen before. Absolutely. And in thinking about, you know, the variety of, of pathways and personalities and types of students and types of experiences that you collect here and beyond Valpo, mm-hmm. that rather than trying to fit yourself into, you know, one of, what, two or three models of right. maybe how we talk about what right. leadership looks like, of really broadening that and expanding it to really come from your own distinct personality, your own gifts, and kind of empowering your leadership in a way that makes sense for you, not in these kind of stereotypical boxes. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the really great things about the two interviews that we are going to be sharing today is I think both of them represent this kind of outside the box leadership in that they are both strong voices in the fields that they are in, but they came to that in different ways. And they represented kind of voices from the outside in who have been able to create additional space for people who don't often kind of self-select into leadership in these different spaces. Um, But I think before we get into it, it's really important to name the fact that just being kind of a quirky personality is not enough, um, that you can't necessarily come in and be extra and be like, and it's my extra that makes me great. Um, But that when you're coming into these spaces, that you can 
lead from your quirks when you have a good process behind that. When it's a place where other people can enter in and you can empower other people to be part of the vision that you're casting. And it's not enough to kind of come in and be like, and I'm amazing and I'm going to convince all of you why, but wanting to really have leadership be something where no matter kind of what you're bringing to the table, that it is in fact a table where you're inviting other people to sit. Um, and I think that that's just a really important thing across the board um, is understanding that no amount of, uh, of personality makes up for bad process. Um, and that you can be a leader of people, but if you can't actually get them from A to B, then there are some deep, deeply seated questions that would need to be addressed uh, behind that. But we want to get into the interviews uh, and we are going to start with Ava Kreikel. And she came to see us in the spring 2018 semester. Um, she is the executive director and co-founder of Glitch. Uh, Glitch promotes the exploration of digital games as a culture, career, and creative practice. It's a community-driven arts and education center for emerging game makers with ongoing programs, events, residencies, and grants. The organization supports emerging creators, makers, thinkers, and doers of new work in digital games whose developing voices reveal significant potential and who are not recognized as established by other creators, curators, producers, and critics. Um, so Ava has worked alongside more than 50 major technology and gaming industry partners, such as Microsoft, Blizzard Entertainment, Riot Games, ASUS, Valve, and 3M, helping them to develop games, design programming, and launch national initiatives. Now, before she was executive director of this very cool, very important startup, she was a student who felt like something was missing, and she decided to do something about it. So I can't wait for you to hear from her. start with the fact that you know when we originally wanted to bring you to campus I had like kind of looked into the work that Glitch was doing and read up about you but then as I was doing additional research I found out that Glitch started as a student organization yes <laughs> and so I'd like to start there um, in both kind of creating a student organization to meet an unfulfilled need and then the process that you and um, your co-founder underwent to decide that like actually this is more than a student organization and kind of what your your kind of trajectory was from starting it to then turning it into its own organization. Sure. Um, so pretty much at the time, I was a sophomore and my co-founder, his name is Nick Van Meerten, he was a graduating senior. Uh, I had come in with a background doing neuroscience and psych um, and he was actually also a psych major. We met uh, just through mutual friends and classes and such. Um, we were both really interested in figuring out something to do with games with our backgrounds, especially mm -hmm. because um, at the time at the university, there wasn't anyone who was doing particular research on games um, from many different fields. Like mm -hmm. we looked in the computer science department, we looked in um, like the science departments in general. Um, we even looked at some of the um, psych departments and, and really no one was doing that type of work. So we didn't really have an immediate group of mentors that we could mm -hmm. just go to. Um, and then um, we kind of looked outside of the university and we saw there was like a local IGDA chapter, but that was really kind of it. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the folks who worked in industry weren't fully connected to anyone within our, uh, within like our networks at the mm -hmm. university. So what we ended up doing was we just started a student organization and we wanted to just get it done and we did it. 
Yeah. One of the things that I've really appreciated in kind of reading about Glitch and the work that you guys are doing is that it's not just wanting to create a space where a bunch of coders can lock themselves in a room and at the end of the day emerge with a new game or a new mm-hmm. project, but there really is both this kind of community piece to mm-hmm. it and kind of how how you're in this together. Mm-hmm. And also a piece that I think is really interesting and important about kind of preventing brain drain uh, from Minnesota and from the Twin Cities that a lot of times when people think about careers in tech, mm-hmm. there are specific cities that you think of, you know, San Francisco, Palo Alto, like, you know, trying to kind of get to these other places. And there is this kind of wanting to create a space and a community and kind of an economic viability for Mm -hmm. people who are interested in this work to stay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think in a community like the one that we're part of here in Valparaiso, Indiana, there's a lot where we're talking about economic vitality, Mm -hmm. but there's a very kind of small group of people who are having that conversation. How did you become interested in not just having this be an organization that kind of allows you to do professionally the thing that you are interested in, but also kind of this other piece of really thinking about the community in terms of the people and community in terms of the place and how Mm -hmm. those things are knit together. Cause that's pretty unique to go from a student organization to somebody in a group that is concerned with economic uh, vitality for your region and for the, you know, the twin cities. Yeah. So um, I think it just essentially comes from some of my interests, mm-hmm. right? Um, we, so at Glitch, we have two parts of our programs. We, we, as a social enterprise, we have our programs, which specifically support like emerging game makers through a bunch of different uh, projects and programs that specifically um, help them develop their skills. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have like our studio side as well, mm-hmm. where we partner up with a bunch of various organizations to actually create games right. and um, make sure that emerging game makers are the bulk of our team and right. really focus on mentorships and uh, experiential learning through the studio side. Mm-hmm. Um, so like those two pieces, um, what I kind of see here is we started talking about like what what are people looking for? Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up doing a survey um, about uh, within Minnesota just to see what it was that people wanted and mm-hmm. or needed or how they felt. I don't remember the exact number right now because it was a little while ago. Um, had you know very clearly stated that they wanted uh, more community development. The other thing that I want to kind of get into a little bit is this idea of, you know, you're starting an organization in a place where there aren't a lot of kind of tech organizations like it already established. Mm-hmm. Who do you guys look to as a model and who do you look to as kind of mentors of people who are leading organizations well, whether that's within tech or not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, especially as a young organization, how do you hope to grow and who do you think is doing this kind of work well? Mm-hmm. And someone or, you know, some group of persons that you guys look to as like, wow, like, you know, they're setting a really kind of high bar for the type of work that we want to be doing. Sure. Um, I would say one of uh, the local organizations, at least, in Minnesota that I look to a lot uh, for inspiration and also to their executive director is Deanna Cummings of Juxtaposition Arts. Mm -hmm. Um, She works with a bunch of youth artists in Northside um, Minneapolis or North Minneapolis and um, man like her and her partners work are 
uh, just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, they do an arts training program, and I think it's called, um, uh, it's like an arts literacy program, which I can't recall the name of it right now, but um, they do that, and that's all free for mm -hmm. uh, youth in Northside. Mm -hmm. um, and then they also have basically a, a studio mm -hmm. in which um, they work specifically with partners and employ a lot of the, um, the youth that were specifically going through their programs um, to create lots of works of art mm -hmm. amongst, uh, or like within Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, and Deanna herself is also a woman of color mm -hmm. who is a badass leader. Mm -hmm. And um, I look to her a lot as, as someone who I had admire. Well, so one of the things, and you know, you referenced the fact that Deanna Cummings also being a woman of color, mm -hmm. obviously in the gaming community, I think that anytime there are headlines around this thing, it's, you know, oh, like women who are feeling like marginalized mm -hmm. or harassed. And, you know, how have you kind of come to find your place in a community that is often kind of stereotypically seen as like white and male? Sure, I think that's what Glitch has done for me, really, mm -hmm. was I am finding peers, I am finding people that have are, are supporting me and also um, some of my personal goals. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's what it really means to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so knowing that I have a support infrastructure, not only other leaders, but also our staff, in addition to um, like our existing partners who believe in me and the work that I'm doing with our team, uh, and also like our founding board, mm -hmm. like having all of those things in place makes me feel confident that I can be more public about the things that we're doing. Um, it, it really is super empowering to know that no matter what happens, um, these folks are going to be around right. and they're going to support me because right. um, I've seen you know what happens with uh, leader like women and people of color who are in leadership positions especially in games and tech mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think um, all of us are going to have to learn to figure out how to manage and right. um, it, it's that type of that that's just not going away anytime right. soon. So right. like I, I think the best way that I've dealt with it and um, will continue to is just having the right people around me who support me in my work. From the south side of Chicago, Nate Marshall is the director of national programs for Louder Than a Bomb Youth Poetry Festival. He's an editor of the Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip Hop, and author of Wild Hundreds, which has been honored with the Black Caucus of the American Library Association's Award for Poetry Book of the Year and the Great Lakes College Association's New Writer Award. His last rap album, Grown, came out in 2015 with his group Daily Lyrical Product. Marshall is a member of the Dark Noise Collective, a nationwide, multiracial, multi-genre collective featuring some of the most exciting, insightful, and powerful poets writing today. We were so grateful for his day on campus and glad that we had the chance to sit down and get his thoughts on how the young people he works with are finding their voice. Without further ado, Nate Marshall. So in your role as an educator, how do you see kind of the formation of kind of like the young people that you're working with? I mean, mm -hmm. do you think that how, how many of them see themselves as people who are in a position to kind of be leaders and like, how do you help them 
kind of think about their own role in kind of the world as it is and the world that they want it to be? I don't know if, if a lot of young people that I interact with naturally see themselves as leaders. And I think that that's just like some of the function of, of what it is to be a young person is that mm-hmm. you have less bodily autonomy. You can't right. necessarily go where you want, when you want, because you're not right. allowed to, or you don't have the money to, right. or whatever. Um, you have to ask people to do things, right? right. You, you know, you don't, maybe you don't feed yourself or don't clothe yourself or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's the, those like sort of material realities that in some, and some of the ways that I think education has increasingly um, begun to rely on things like testing um, and things that, uh, yeah, I don't know, that, that don't necessarily train young people to like challenge critically and, mm-hmm. and to like develop an analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that like those things work against like young people's development of a self-perception as a leader. But I think um, for me in terms of like the, the things that are important, right, in, in developing that um, and in thinking about like how a young person, how a student like um, can move towards think being thoughtful about how it is that they hope to affect change in the world, right. um, whether that be like a personal world or like sort of larger uh, political worlds. I think the first thing um, is like, I think the first thing is like questioning, right? The first mm-hmm. thing is like um, looking seriously and critically at oneself, at one's world, at the dynamics that are at play mm-hmm. um, and really beginning to develop an analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, and then I think, you know, moving a step beyond that, right, when it comes to practice, is I think um, learning, like, listening, like, getting young people to listen to themselves and think about um, what are my natural strengths or, or what are strengths that I'm interested in building? Mm-hmm. Um, who can I learn those things from? Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of how can I apply my strengths, whatever they might be, mm-hmm. uh, to whatever, um, whatever, like, outcomes I'm interested in affecting in the world, right? Right. So, um, you know, so often, like, if we think about something like sort of social justice movements or whatever, um, we often think of these, like, uh, sort of big, singular, messianic, like, charismatic leaders. Right. right. Um, and those, those, that's a role, and that, that's, like, an important thing to do, but it's like, well, dang, what if I, like, actually hate talking in front of people, but, like, I um, am a really good visual artist. Right. Or I can, like, you know, file and help, or you know, organize things from, like, a clerical perspective or whatever. Like, um, I think, you know, so much of it is, like, uh, you know, it's like that, that, like, Bible story about, like, uh, taking one's talents and, like, Mm -hmm. and and being fruitful with them and multiplying them. Is like how do you uh, think about the world you want to create, and then how do you like bring whatever talent or whatever skill you may have to bear? Well, I love this idea of like kind of putting 
kind of intention the idea that when we think of like these big moments of change that oftentimes there is some face there is some kind of leader who comes to mind but how more often than not the when we think about the movement itself that's a whole group of people who are working together to affect different kinds of change and so if we kind of measure successful leadership by like being able to achieve these outcomes these desired outcomes that part of being a good leader is being a good collaborator and being able to yeah. work in community with other people to achieve these things together so mm -hmm. As an artist and as an educator, those are actually like two roles where being able to be collaborative yeah. can be both um, really important in terms of self-care, but also really good in terms of creativity and kind of that ongoing fuel and energy to do the work. So in the spaces that you're in, how has working with others um, allowed you to kind of like move forward in some of the goals that you've had both professionally and as a person? Yeah, I mean, it's been invaluable. Yeah, working collaboratively has been sort of everything for me. In many ways, I, I, I often will say to, to people that, like, sort of my, like, primary political organizing model or sort of cultural organizing model is that of the cipher, which is, so, like, a cipher, that's, like, um, in hip-hop, like, when you see, like, a group of, like, young folks, like, freestyling. And the thing that I think about the cipher is, like, in the cipher, there's, there's very much, like, there's a notion of, like, stepping back and stepping forward. There's a notion of like bringing oneself to the space and wanting to like, and wanting to represent oneself, but also a sense that you cannot take up too much space, mm -hmm. right? And there's also, I would argue, a sense that like, even if you're, for instance, like, not like the rapper in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. There are other things you can play, whether that's like, there are other roles to play, whether mm -hmm. that's like you're clapping or you're, the beat, or you're beatboxing or you're just like being a good engaged listener. And that it's it's an egalitarian space where where people are stepping forward and stepping back, and there's not this sort of like natural hierarchy, right? Um, at least in this sort of idealized version, like that that is the thing that I think about. Those are the values that I try to bring to bear, like when when I'm working collaboratively. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I, I, yeah, I sort of think of all my favorite projects, and, and in many ways, like for me, all the projects that I do, I think of as like collaborations fundamentally. Even even my own sort of personal books or personal work because even those things are going through you know the lens of oh I have an editor at my press or right. I have um, trusted readers who are friends of mine who are contributing right mm -hmm. um, but yeah like you know constantly you know coming up as as a rapper like I was in rap groups and that was the way that I was sort of most interested and invested in creating mm -hmm. um, coming up as a poet I was like on poetry slam teams where mm -hmm. we were all working together on each other's poems and then also writing group pieces. Um, and so I've always seen art and I've, I've always seen my like artistic practice and my intellectual practice and all of those things as sort of like group, like group activities, right? Mm -hmm. um, as like group projects. Well, anytime we have somebody who has kind of made their art, their work, uh, and obviously, you know, there's also the education piece and the writing piece, which are extraordinarily important. But I always think there's this moment of, did you ever think that you should do something else more practical? And mm. what was it that finally kind of pushed you to say, no, this is the thing that I'm going to do. This is the work that I'm going to be about, whether it's for a season or for a lifetime. But um, in choosing something more creative, um, did you experience any of that kind of like practical tension? Um, and if so, how did you deal with it? Yeah. Um, you know, any young person who, uh, 
who tells their parents, hey, y'all, I want to be an artist. Mm-hmm. I think, like, yeah, there were, there were just, like, you know, some fair amount of, like, griping right. or just, like, fear from, yeah. from my folks. And the, the thing about it is, like, I didn't even tell them. I didn't even say, like, yeah, I want to be a poet mm-hmm. or when I grew up or anything like that. They just, but they saw that it was a thing I was passionate about, right. I was interested in, I was good at. Right. And so then they started to then think about, like, what are the, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think particularly if you're, like, you know, a kid that is sort of, like, academically talented and you're going to, like, go to college and do mm-hmm. these kind of things because... You know, for my folks, like, and for my family, right, who come from, like, a working class background, they're like, oh, but, like, you could be, like, a lawyer or a businessman mm-hmm. or, like, or these things that um, that were often handed as, like, the sort of, like, prestige jobs and, right. the, and the jobs with which you make a lot of money or whatever. And I was not, I wasn't, I was never, like, I don't want to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the thing for me in my education and also sort of in my personal journey right the thing that mm-hmm. I've always let guide me is I said like what am I interested in and what do I want to know mm-hmm. and I'm gonna like dig down there mm-hmm. um, and I'll sort of worry about like making it practical later yeah right? but I'm gonna follow like my talent and my interests um and that has served me well mm-hmm. um, and also I think you know one thing I tell a lot of young people especially when they ask me like how do you make it as a writer how do you make it as a poet or whatever mm-hmm. is I think that um, I think really to do that well, like you, you have, you should be broad and flexible about your vision for what that means. Thank you for listening to Podcast Meets Purpose, brought to you by the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. We hope you check out past episodes and stay tuned for all the great conversations to come this semester. We'd like to recognize the outstanding work of our producer, Felicia Scandon. Our intro theme is by Hook Sounds Music. You can stay connected to the Institute by liking us on Facebook, following us on Instagram, or subscribing to our YouTube channel. 